Live from the basement of Voodoo Sound, it's time to get your mojo working. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Take the next 40 odd minutes to get your hands on some tips and tools that will get you working at your best in both your business and your personal life. Hey everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. We're into November. Thank you to the dulcet tones of Andrew Peters. AP, mate, uh, nice to have you in the house. Thank you, Gary. Must admit, the intro does uh, give the show a bit of a lift. The show as hell it needs it. Anyway, on with the show. Who's your guest this week? Uh, you're sounding very attractive. Thank you very much. <laughs> kind words. Folks, um, if you're new to the show, rather than me tell you what it's all about, let me let me tell you what one of our listeners thought. And this was a review that came through on iTunes. The reason I'm going to read it to you is not to blow our own trumpet, but to, it's just a really good way for you to understand, if you're new to the show, what is the show all about. Now, this comes from Mark Willsmore. Willsey. Willsey. Big Willie. Now, he said, five stars, good on you, mate, tops. He said, if you're looking for a podcast that will give you insight into what successful people do, what drives them to be on top of their game, then this is where you need to be. The Mojo Radio Show is nothing short of exceptional. Gary and Robbo bring in guests of all walks of life and ask them the questions you wish you'd thought of to gain an understanding of what they do to be successful and what they've done when things are not going well for them. These podcasts are chock full of great tips, interesting insights and exceptional stories. And so it goes. So, Willsey, mate, if you get in contact with us, just go to our website. You'll see the email address. Email us an address. We'll send you a bottle of our Rocktober Rocket Fuel, which is our chili sauce, which is... uh, is bloody good. You know what that means? That means Willie's scored some chilies. <laughs> Willie. Willie scored some chilies. Chili. <laughs> and there's been lots of great reviews come in. I mean, Aaron D76 and it's a lovely note and Elo Asti, cool name, who <laughs> the heading was Doseki, Tim Tams, an absolute value, five stars. So all you guys, just get in touch with us. Let us know where you are. We just need a mailing address. We'll ship it at our cost. The Rocktober Rocket Fuel Chili Sauce is yours. But that just gives you an idea of what the show is all about. If you're a regular listener, you already knew that. You're on board. Thanks for thanks for downloading. Thanks for coming back again. So let's get started. Before we do, let's say good day to the bus driver, the man who drives the bus, the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show. Robbo, put, it, put us in gear, mate. We're in gear. I'm feeling a little bit hollow today, though. Feeling a little bit lost. Now that Rocktober's over, I'm not quite sure what to do. One word, Doseki. The Mojo Radio Show. Got to be one of my favourite all-time guests you're about to talk about, we're about to talk to, lover to death. And if you haven't already caught our back catalogue, uh, let me just put you in the in the picture with who Patria King is. Patria King, I'm just going to say in one word, is wonderful. Uh, as a child... Patria spent endless months in hospital. She had these really bad leg operations and at one point the doctors were saying she wouldn't walk. Operation after operation in hospitals for a month on, isn't able to walk. Imagine that as a child. And then in the early 80s she was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukaemia and was not expected to live. Then she faced the suicide of her brother Brendan, who she was very, very close with. And then there came the day where her husband went for a walk down the shops and never came back and left her with her children living overseas. 
Honestly, this lady's life is just one hardship after another, but she'd never know it because after spending time in complete silence in a monastery in Italy, which we'll talk about in the show, Patria found kind of her true calling, like her true purpose in life. And since that time, Patria's been counselling individuals through her own programs or one-to-one, and she's helped tens of thousands of people living with cancer and other life-challenging illnesses and the people who are going through hard times. They've seen the darkness, grief, loss, trauma, tragedy. She's a really well-recognised speaker. She's on ABC Radio regularly. She's the go-to person when you need to find your way out of the darkness into the light. Force of nature is what we call it. So, Patria, welcome back. You're an old friend, Uh, Mojo Radio Show. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be with you. Round number three, you're in a select group, Patria. (laughs) That's a privilege. (laughs) We're going to do something a little bit different. We've never done this in a show before, which is great, is that we want to track through your brand new book called Up Until Now. It's a memoir. It's a beautiful book. I've been through it cover to cover and I want to track through the book, ask you about the story and ask you about the lessons that come from it that we can apply to our own world. Mm. I, just want to, I just want to start by asking you, is there a certain therapy that you believe can come from one sitting down to do this sort of exercise? Oh, absolutely. I would really encourage anyone to do it because... What I found was that all of the emotions that I assiduously avoided at the time of going through some fairly traumatic experiences, I could touch into those now as an adult and they kind of just slipped then into my history in a really lovely way. So, you know, I've often told the bones of my story, but in actual, actually writing about the flesh, you know, that's where all the emotions are. The bones are sort of the historical things that happen, but it's in the flesh that all of the emotions lie. And because I didn't deal with any of the emotions when I I was going through the experiences, I did touch into them when I was writing about them and that was actually very healing and very therapeutic and I think it helped just sort of settle and integrate those experiences into my history. Did it it seem to bring a resolution to a few things? Oh, it did, yes. Yeah, things you went through as a child and you were just saying now looking back with the advantage or the strength Mm. of maturity, what Mm. were some of the things that you you actually resolved in your own mind? Well, it wasn't until I was writing the memoir that I realised that my father, of course, probably had PTSD, having just returned from the Second World War where all the men were told, you know, you don't talk about the bones of the story, let alone the flesh, and just to get on and and create their life. But if I bumped, inadvertently bumped his bed you know, on a Sunday morning when he was reading the paper, the tirade that would come forth from that was just terrifying. Or he'd do very odd things like line the three of us, my two brothers and myself up on the floor lying down and put matches between our toes and we'd we'd kind of giggle excitedly, nervously, you know, while he did so because it kind of tickled as well. And But then he'd like them and say, who could put up with it the longest. And, of course, looking back, I think, you know, that's a very odd thing to do with a four-year-old girl <laughs> and and let alone my, my slightly older brothers. But 
Um, so it wasn't until I was writing about some of these things that I realised how strange they actually were and how scary. Or he'd tickle me at night, you know, and there'd be this hilarity coming from uh, my bedroom when he'd tickle me at night, but he wouldn't stop. And I was nearly hysterical because he just would not stop tickling me. And really, that's kind of an abuse, even though at the time it sounded like it was full of, you know, happiness and joy. So it was very interesting to write about it. And then, of course, I also went to Dalcross Hospital, where I spent three years as a teenager in Kalara. And I asked the staff whether I could go visit the, the room where um, I'd been as a, a child, because I was always put in the same bed. And I was 13, 14, 15 around that time. And, uh, you know, just standing in the space where the bed was, it's now been all renovated and, and is a waiting room, but standing where the bed was and looking out the window at the same trees, uh, it, it was very easy to connect with the loneliness and the fear and the pain of that little girl who always put on such a brave face, even though the inner reality was really so different from her exterior. So it was very instructive in that way to to kind of connect the emotions to the events uh, rather than have them just submerged somewhere. And I feel quite different now in some ways that I've written the book. You know, it's kind of just put everything to rest. I was going to say, it sounds like it was uh, must have been pretty cathartic to sit down and sort of put all that on paper. It, it was at times. You know, my partner would come in every now and again and, See, see me with tears in my eyes and, and wonder what I was up to. But yeah. uh, I, think, I think it was actually a very valuable thing to do and something I'd really recommend to anybody. There was an interesting statement. You said, while it's great to have a story, we don't have to be that story. Can you just elaborate on that for me? Well, I, I think in writing, um, in some ways, just put it all to rest so that, you know, I have a story and it's included a lot of abuse and and violence in some situations and certainly chronic pain and fear and anxiety and, you know, my brother's mental illness and his ultimate suicide and, um, you know, yeah, I have that story and I'm grateful for that story because... All of those things, and I left out all the colourful ones, but all of those things were the, the things that really pushed me into parts of myself that I probably wouldn't willingly have explored otherwise. And so it's made me a better companion to be with other people who are experiencing their anguish or their grief or loss or trauma or fear or whatever it might be, not because I know what it's like for them, but I, I know what that place is like for me. And but I don't have to live with the unresolved issues from that story. Now they all feel like just part of my history, almost like they happened to somebody else that I know really well. Um, but I don't live out of that trauma or live out of that anxiety or that fear. So I think when you have a story, um, you know, that can be a, a beautiful thing because it's often our suffering that connects us and uh, to our compassion and to hopefully some wisdom and insight. But we don't have to live through that story and use it as some sort of filter between us and the world. Is journaling 
in your opinion, uh, a way to access that, Petria? Because I suspect people listening to the show will say, well, I don't have any intention of writing a book. Mm. And I'm looking at usable, practical ways that people could access the same outcome. Yes. Do you believe that maybe journaling or painting even for some people or poetry yes. could be an ac- a way to access that? Well, I, I think that's the creative thing that a person needs to find if they want to find peace with their past and resolution around whatever happened to them in their past, then some people paint it, some people journal it, some people sing it. Um, You know, you need to find a creative outlet so that what is held within can find expression. And, you know, some people find that that's easy to do through journaling, but it's it's not everybody's path. Um, I was fortunate, really, in lots of ways. Publishers, you know, I'm a natural writer uh, because I left school at 13 because I ended up in hospital for uh, the rest of my schooling years. So um, I enjoy the process of writing, and I think you have to enjoy um, words and and doing that to journal effectively. Um, but it, I think it's worth a go for anybody who's been through, certainly been through any trauma. You just mentioned learning and we talked about the fact, some of the things that came to mind with your dad uh, once you started to reflect in the book. What did you learn about Patria yourself? Was there something that you learned about yourself from this process that you hadn't thought of before? Uh, well, I think I, I gained a greater respect for my own resilience and that, you know, that gritty determination was is something very fundamental in me. Um, you know, when they told me I'd never walk again and I would unhook the traction unit in the middle of the night between nurses' rounds and by then I'd been in, in traction for nine months and my legs were just these two white sticks in the bed and no matter how much willpower I used, I couldn't move either of them. And so I would lift my legs out over the side of the bed and slide down and all of that was incredibly painful because my legs hadn't bent at all for nine months. And um, and then I took my weight on my elbows and kind of shuffled my way around the bed and could feel the bones in my femur grinding together and the plate and the screws came loose. And But the bone united in three weeks. <laughs> but then, you know, I'd have to get back into bed and I'd be absolutely in a, a lather of perspiration from pain and um, had to get all of the traction units strapped on again and the weight pulled up and back in place before the nurse came round with her flashlight for the next round. So it was full of um, kind of tension. But there was this sort of gritty determination in that little girl that she was jolly well going to walk. If they said she wasn't going to walk, then <laughs> then that was like, oh, we'll see about that. <laughs> so I think I gained a greater respect for my own resilience. And uh, this, this may be an odd question, Patria, but hearing you say that, do you – do you somehow associate that gritty little girl with being in you? Like sometimes when we look back on our past, do we think that was a different person and do we not appreciate that those attributes? And the reason I ask the question like this, and it's, I'm, actually, I'm thinking out loud here, we had Michael Gervais who is a sports psychologist and he's a very, very successful sports psychologist in America. Mm-hmm. And he said when he's bringing people to the moment, 
to be their best in this particular moment. Quite often what he'll do is he'll get people to recount a time in their past when they're able to deliver something. So whether it be an exam at school or a footy match to kick that pressure goal or being mm-hmm. compassionate with a friend. But let's let's recount personal history. And they go, yes, I can. He said, well, you know you can do that now. How, how did you feel? What did you do? Let's bring it to this moment right now. Mm-hmm. Do we somehow disconnect from that little girl? Like do you feel as though because hearing you talk about it, you speak of that little girl. Was it a yes. reconciling the fact that little girl is actually me just in a different time? Yes, I think so because I've needed that gritty determination throughout my life for a whole range of different reasons. So it's not like, you know, she had it and I don't. Um, you know, she is me. And 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 I think it was putting, putting it actually onto paper um, helped me to understand myself even more deeply, even though I've done years of reflection and therapy and heaven knows what over, over the last three decades. But it helped me to uh, have some deeper respect, I think, for some of the strengths and qualities that I've been blessed with. Um, I've certainly needed that gritty determination in running a charity because it's not easy to run a charity. But I think to live according to your values and to live according to what you hold dear is is a very important attribute to have and not to negate it or to compromise, I think, is for me a really important part of my own sense of peace. It's funny you mention that because I want to read a paragraph from the book that ties back to that. And I, and I think it, it's it, one thing I've noticed is that you are, even at a young age, you are very intuitive. Uh, you said, I didn't want to put up with the craziness of people piled on top of each other in tiny cubicles for homes while they didn't even know their neighbours' names. I didn't understand how people could spend a lifetime shuffling bits of paper from one side of the desk to the other. People seemed so willing to settle for such a mediocre life a huge judgment on my part, but indicative of how strongly I felt that what the world seemed to value was pointless. The question I've got, Patria, is that was you talking about that young, gritty girl who was obviously very intuitive and looking at the world around and what her own dreams and aspirations were. Do you still feel that today? And oh yes, <laughs> and, the, and the work you're in, do people tend to resolve that l- the latter part of their life when they're about to sort of leave the planet? Well, sometimes you know we've spoken before on this program about how sometimes it's not until some suffering comes into our life that we really wake up and question. Who am I? What am I doing on the planet? Am I living the life I came here to live? If not, why not? And what am I going to do about it? And I think as a young person, I, I was deeply affected by the, the cruelty I saw amongst people. By um, And now as an adult, you know, the, the political machinations that uh, are so unnecessary and so such a diversion from what we could be focused on. We could be focused on creating a, a kinder and more compassionate world where equality was a living presence in our lives. We we could encourage so many um, 
better ways of living, but it keeps getting bogged down in personal egos and and philosophies that um, are about accumulation rather than um, community and and sustainability and what's going to help a planet to survive well into the future for our children and our grandchildren. And so, you know, I, I think the things that disturbed me as a child, now there's just sort of an adult version of those very same things, whether it's about the environment or about health. You know, doctors don't study anything to do with health when they're doing their training. They only study disease and how to manage it according to a set protocol. You know, it's it's not um, – we know that it takes 15 to 20 years for current research to be incorporated into the healthcare system. And we know, for instance, what we're doing at Quest, um, because I met, met with the, the Commissioner for Mental Health and described all of the things that we draw on in our programs, and, and she said, you know, you are – providing a cutting-edge program, and but you don't fit anywhere for funding because it's you take a holistic approach. You take a recovery-orientated approach, not a pharmaceutical approach, not a, a, you know, a medical approach. And so it's, those are the frustrations that I, I still feel that even though um, there's wonderful research to back up a holistic approach to health, which means we have to stop treating diseases and start treating people. But the whole system is geared to treat diseases, not to treat people. And, you know, it's like this beer moth. How you're going to get it to change course is a slow process. You you mentioned the word suffering and we've talked about resilience and grit and it's been a theme through our show for four odd years, Patria, and... Mm-hmm. Reading through the book, it seems that your mother, you described her as an indomitable spirit. And in that portion of the book, you talked about how resilience, most people don't know how resilient they are until mm. they're, say, they're facing a true setback or mm. they're called upon, they have no choice but to be resilient or gritty. Mm. And what I'm curious about, it's almost like, to find our true self, we have to go through these things. So in a way, it seems, maybe it's odd, but in a way we almost seem to welcome when times get tough to find out who we are. So I'm not saying we, mm. we look to create that. But mm. from reading your work and some of the psychologists we've had on the show, we do find ourselves in that time and then in mm. reflection we go, gee, wow, I got through that. It's almost mm. like we have to change our thinking when things go wrong to say, well, this is a learning opportunity. Is that, do you find that? Absolutely. I mean, look at what happens when there's a bushfire, a flood, a, a community disaster, how quickly people set aside all of their itchy, glitchy bits and come together and support and bring food and compassion and support and open their doors and, and open their bedrooms for people to come and sleep and stay. And, you know, in an instant, we wouldn't hesitate for a moment in offering whatever kind of support we can when there's some sort of calamity. 
And, you know, the pearl only comes about in the oyster because something irritated the heck out of the oyster. That's how, <laughs> that's how a pearl comes into being. Sounds like our studio, Patria. <laughs> <laughs> and it seems such a, you know, in those moments we drop all of our prejudices, our judgments about one another, our competitiveness, our, um, you know, me first kind of thinking goes out the window the moment there's a disaster and we all draw together. Well, imagine if we did that all of the time. If we creatively looked as communities, as families, as nations, if we all look creatively at possibilities to solve problems rather than this competitive, uncooperative nature that we often exhibit uh, when we're just ticking along, you know. I mean, our politics, when we look at our politics and, and the stuff that they waste time on, it's enough to break anyone's heart. Gold, guys. That's gold. gold. <laughs> and, and not only... Pearls. <laughs> not only gold, a new phrase for the studio, itchy, glitchy bits. Itchy, glitchy bits. Oh, itchy. What did it in your promo, AP? Itchy, yeah, glitchy right. bits. Itchy Coming glitchy from you, Gary. I uh, give that great kudos. <laughs> it's interesting, Robert, because this is the part of the show mm. where I impress the guest. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, watch, 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 watch this. Away. Watch this. Patria, can you explain what we need to know about psychoneuroimmunology, please, <laughs> and okay. how that impacted your recovery Bang. Hey, how's that one? Not only impressed the guest, you've impressed the co-host. <laughs> Psychoneuroimmunology. Yes, it's the most ridiculous title given to anything. But when you think about it, you know, the mind has a direct effect on the body. And for many, many years, medicine uh, treated the two as being completely separate and without any relationship to one another. Um, you might need to cut this next little bit out, but I've often said to groups of male doctors that anyone who thinks the mind is not connected to the body clearly has never had an erection. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if that can go to air. Oh, that's going in. Don't worry, that's it, going in the promo. <laughs> itchy, glitchy bits, AP. Itchy, glitchy Because bits. clearly what's going on in our mind is having an effect on our body, which is why we can heal the brain from things like post-trauma symptoms, you know, when people have been through traumatic events. We know that that's like a physical injury to the brain and it causes people to be hypervigilant, hyperanxious, have nightmares, flashbacks, sweaty palms, uh, be very reactive. Um, so we know that that's actually an injury to the amygdala and the, the very uh, primitive most primitive parts of the brain, and they get hyperactive and pump out a whole lot of fear chemicals. And those fear chemicals through the nervous system keep us in that very hypervigilant, hyperanxious state. So, But we know now how we can settle that down, and it's about bringing people into the moment. So all the research is, you know, it's about canine therapy or dolphin therapy or... Um, equine therapy or going for a long bike ride or whatever it is, these are all activities that bring you right into the present moment. 
because when you're with the horse, the dog, the dolphin, you're not worried, you're not anxious, you're not thinking about the future. As soon as you put the brain into that restful state, which meditation, mindfulness are all about this, as soon as the brain's in that restful state, it starts producing chemicals that actually heal the brain. So, you know, we know that the mind is definitely connected to the body and that also means to our immune system. And I think when you've gone through, we know that people who've gone through um, great grief have a greater susceptibility to developing cancer in the 18 months to two years after going through a significant grief. Again, because all of those neurotransmitters, the chemicals of our emotions, are quietly suppressing our immune system because we don't really need an immune system at that time. And we, we actually need other things. But one of the downsides of that is if it's not well managed, uh, it can suppress your immune system to the point where illnesses can form. I think probably many listeners have had the experience that come the weekend, that's when they get the migraine or come, they go away on holidays and they get sick. It's like, oh, good. The body says, oh, good. I've got time to be sick now. And uh, instead of you know, looking after our health all the way through so that that doesn't happen. Wow. It seems that a lot of people think that mindfulness, let's use that as a term, people need to sit cross-legged with their hands out and be chanting. Mm. But mm. in the book, there's something you talked about, which I think Robbo should pay particular attention to. It's the mindfulness that comes from cleaning. <laughs> you said <laughs> a simple task like cleaning, you can make into a sacred one. Mm. And you said that sacred place that you can do in, in something as mundane as cleaning can actually be a form of mindfulness. Could you explain that for us? Yes. Well, you know, we often say to people when they're having a panic attack, come to your senses. And we say that because your body is always in the present moment. It's never in the future and it's never in the past. It's always in the now. Our brain, though, has the tendency to always be telling us stories about the future, all the things that might happen, could happen, probably won't happen. It rehearses conversations. It makes judgments. It's very, very busy. Or it's in the past rehashing stories or resenting things or blaming things or reliving things from the past. And whenever your brain is caught up in the future or caught up in the past, you're creating a physiology, back to psychoneuroimmunology, you're creating a physiology in your body that is either conducive or not to your health. So when you anchor your sense of consciousness in the present moment, that means that you're connected to the senses of your body. If you're cleaning, you can watch your hands, you can focus on the space between the cloth and whatever it is that you're cleaning, and then you begin to hear all of the sounds around you, the brain quietens down, and that's often when your intuition works. And in fact, you know, because I live with chronic pain, I have to be in the present moment all the time because I have to move consciously or I rip ligaments and tendons very easily. And what I've found is that 
so coming to my senses is my constant practice rather than I have had years of meditation, but now my constant practice is just to come to my senses. And I have no chatter in my brain. My brain doesn't tell me stories about the future or the past. It doesn't do any of the any of the stuff that it used to do. And when the brain is actually entrained by being connected to the senses, you have access to your intuition, insight, wisdom, humour, spontaneity, creativity and compassion. And those are all really incredibly valuable qualities to be connected to moment by moment. As soon as your brain starts telling you stories about the future or the past, you lose connection with insight, intuition, wisdom, humor, spontaneity, creativity. Those are all present time qualities and they're qualities that we all need in our life. So mindfulness for me just means being coming to our senses constantly and being aware of whether we're what we're feeling, what we're hearing, what we're tasting, smelling, seeing, that we're fully present to what is in this moment. And then there's no space for idle chatter in the mind. We've we started the show talking about you and the book does it beautifully as you you trace your journey where where you have had to face a lot and you've had to deal with a lot and now you're helping other people deal with a lot. Do you think that the mindfulness that you're talking about here, is that a way of us being able to make suffering almost bearable in a way? Is it a coping mechanism that we could use, Petria, to help us get through those those times when the darkness closes in and we can't see the light? Mm. Would you recommend people go to this place? Oh, indeed, indeed, because... You know, most of our suffering is what our brain makes of whatever's going on around us. You know, it's not necessarily in the event itself, it's in what we bring to the event. And we can learn to manage that. Uh, You know, even simple things like if you weed out or only ever use the following words with consciousness, I can't. When we say I can't speak in public, say... We're talking out of our past little nervous person. I choose not to speak in public, is speaking as an adult who recognises I might have this nervous, itchy, litchy little person, and I choose not to put her into a situation where that might become unmanageable. But I can't speak in public um, is unhelpful. And it's amazing, you know, the other words are I can't, I should, try, but never, if only, impossible, always. That little group of words are the hooks back into our reactive patterns. And, you know, people who say I'll try and come on Sunday, you know, they're not coming. You're not setting the table for someone who says they'll try and come. So, yes, I'll be there. Thank you so much for asking me, but no, I'm fully committed. Once we clean up our language and use it appropriately, we're home and hosed, really, because we know exactly, you know, when your language is clear, then you're communicating clearly. People generally say, I'll try and come on Saturday when they don't know how to disappoint someone um, or they're leaving their options open. 
Um, but once we get conscious and we say, you know, thank you so much for asking me, perhaps uh, you do need to say, you know, I have this illness or this problem and I really won't know whether I'll be able to join you on Saturday until Saturday morning itself. Is that going to be a problem for you? But not I'll try and come. And the only time you can use try is when you're playing rugby. Otherwise, leave it out. The same with I should, you know, I should is generally a reflection or a memory of the nuns or parents' uh, set of values. So I should go and do X, Y, Z. Uh, I will, I won't, I choose to, I choose not to, I've decided to, I've decided not to, but not I should. So when you clean up your language, it makes a huge difference. It's funny you should say that because Gary and I choose not to go a day without Dos <laughs> choice. It's a choice. It's a a tough choice, choice, but it's still a choice. Yeah. There was something you wrote in the book, which I thought was beautiful, Patria, that that ties back to language and how you frame things. It was a beautiful question. The question you posed was, what is standing in the way of you having peace? Mm. And I think the framing of that really puts it from, I can't, I should, why is, why is it always happened to me? I can't, all these when you frame it around mm. and say, well, in a positive sense, what's standing in the way, and not of success, mm. but of peace. And I think people mm. today crave peace, and they're finding it mm. hard to find peace. Yes. That's that's a profound question, isn't it? Well, it, for me, it was a, a an important question because. When I was diagnosed with leukaemia when I was 33, which was just after my brother's suicide, um, up until then, I'd been a very strict vegetarian. I'd studied a lot about natural health because I had this chronic um, pain and arthritis, particularly in my knees after all the surgeries I'd had. So I'd studied natural health and how I could help myself, really. Uh, I'd been meditating for 15 years because I, I found meditation when I was 17. I studied to be a naturopath and I was also a yoga meditation teacher. So it was downright embarrassing to have cancer when I knew so much about health. I suspect the hundreds of x-rays I had as a child probably contributed to it, along with the great grief of uh, my brother's suicide. But so I knew for me it wasn't about, you know, we've all got to drink carrot juice. Um, I love carrot juice. But, you know, rather than looking at what do I have to do to um, make myself not die, <laughs> it, for me the question became I just want to find peace. I thought I would die. And if I was going to die, then I wanted to find peace before I did. And I wasn't at peace with my history. I wasn't at peace with myself. I couldn't see a pathway forward that was worth engaging with, except for the fact that I had two gorgeous little children and didn't want to leave them. Um, so when I went into, finally went into practice as a naturopath, my question to people always was, well, what is it that stands in the way of you being at peace? And oftentimes it was something in the body, you know, diarrhea, nausea, hot flushes, night sweats, um, can't switch my mind off at night. And I would use what I'd learnt through naturopathy and natural health principles and yoga and meditation to ease that suffering. And then once their body was, was quiet or they were in less pain or they were now sleeping soundly, now what is it that stands in the way of you being at peace? 
And those conversations got ever deeper into, I don't know myself. I I feel I'm here for something, but I, I don't know what it is. Um, my relationships are in tatters. Um, I, I feel overwhelmed by my life. You know, I don't, I feel like I live through a facade. And all of these conversations I found very interesting. And as people started talking to me about, you know, domestic violence or rape or drugs or chronic pain or growing up with mental illness, all of the, having cancer, all of these were part of my experience as well. And so, in many ways, all of those people, when I asked that question, what is it that stands in the way of you being at peace, also helped me to understand myself more deeply as well because they um, uttered the words that I'd never had and helped me to find the words to describe the human journey that I think we're all on, you know, that journey home back to our essential nature rather than what's become second nature to us. People often say, oh, it's second nature for me to judge other people. It's second nature for me to think this way or react this way or feel this way. And no one ever questions, well, what's your first nature? What was there What was there before you took on those beliefs, those limitations, those things that cause you to feel separate, that cause you to feel better than, worse than, more than, less than other people? And I think we're all on that journey back home to our essential nature where we no longer live with the limitations that we gathered as young people. And I want to ask you about your your first nature now because meditation and contemplation have always been, at the, in the book you call them your closest companions. And then at the same mm. time you said whilst you were doing that and your inner world flourished, I still struggled in social situations. Mm. I was painfully preoccupied with my own shortcomings and failures and guilt and shame continued to infiltrate my sense of self. I became more adept at deflecting interest in myself by asking questions of others and they Mm. were happy enough to talk about their own lives without seemingly taking notice of my tactic. Do you you still have to deal with that today, Patria? Is that still something you feel and go through? Because that... Self-imposter thing is a big issue for people. Oh, indeed. Yes, it is. Um, I think these things that become second nature to us when we're young people are incredibly tenacious because they're literally written into our biology through that neuro um, psychology thing that we were talking about before, mm, mm. That, that it's literally written into your cells to be a particular way. I still find... Um, some social situations that are very superficial uh, or where people are all yelling at each other because of the sheer volume of noise. I still find those situations, uh, I try to avoid them if I can um, because I I don't know, I, it just, it doesn't kind of float my boat really. Uh, I'd rather be sitting quietly somewhere having a, a deeper conversation with someone or silence for that matter because silence is a great companion too. So I, I see the remnants there. I'm, I don't particularly like having the focus on me. I would prefer to be out in the kitchen washing up, you know, that sort of thing, rather than be on stage. But as you know, I, 
the first time I had a was asked to speak in public, I had a panic attack and spilt water all down the front of my suit and and sat down inside of thirty seconds, not having said a coherent yeah. word. And now I've given thousands and thousands of um, talks and speeches and lectures and um, but you know outside of my public uh, persona. Uh, my partner calls me the deaf mute, you know. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't talk a lot at home and I'm mostly in the garden or with the dogs or or um, enjoying the solitude and the, the peace that we have in our own home, which is lovely. <laughs> we, um, I think it's fair to say, that, Robert, we have a big a big community of Swamis who listen to the show. Oh, I'd all our Swami We're swami all swarmed friends. out. Yeah, it, uh <laughs> Very important part of our community. But you had a particular Swami. I'm going to have a crack at this. Swami Kriyananda. (laughs) Swami Kriyananda, yeah. yeah. Said. Well, Ananda is a Sanskrit word meaning bliss and Kriya is a form of yoga, a particular form of yoga that was taught by a wonderful teacher, wonderful Swami, Paramahansa Yogananda, and he brought Kriya yoga to the West and uh, it, and so Swami Kriyananda was a direct disciple of his, and it's a particular meditation technique. So uh, Kriyananda was just his his um, given name from his Indian teacher. Those names wow. are amazing, aren't they? Kriyananda. Okay, yeah, no, I got that. That's that. good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, Swami Kriyananda. Now I've got my act together. He said, <laughs> "There is no solid ground." And the only way to have peace and good humour was to respond to each moment to what is and not our version of how things should be. Mm. I thought that was beautiful because I think that, I don't know, it just seems that we live in this perception of what, what we think it is. Mm. Mm. But when we take the time to reflect, slow down, use our senses to actually what is, it's nowhere near what we think it is or we think it could be. Do you, is mm. that, was that where the Swami was coming from? Am I right with that? Yes, yes. No, that's exactly right. It's, it's like if you have chronic pain, uh, the suffering becomes when you don't want it. <laughs> you know, if you really don't want it, it can drive you nuts. If you accept that you have chronic pain and you live peacefully with your body as much as you can and do what you need to do to be as comfortable as possible, uh, then you're accepting what is and working with that. It's the same as when maybe someone in your life dies. Uh, and, of course, we're going to grieve and, and miss that person and feel sad for their absence. Um, and that's a natural human process to go through. But saying I can never have peace again because this person died. Mm, mm. And sometimes indeed people hang on to the pain and the anguish of grief as a way of hanging on to the person, whereas if they were able to accept that this did happen, this awful accident, this terrible illness, this shocking thing that took this person from you, 
if we're willing to come to a sense of acceptance around that did happen and it happened to me, then we're able to deal with the feelings around that and gradually it finds its way into our history so that we have the story but we don't have to live through the story of that grief and that that grief doesn't have to paralyse us for the rest of time. So it's a way of being with difficult things as they are. You know, if you're fired from your job, there are some people who will make that um, a cause for tremendous bitterness and rage and outrage and, and sometimes do some dreadful things <laughs> to retaliate or to – and it consumes them. And I think we all know people who've been consumed by bitterness or by greed or by any number of, of qualities that certainly don't bring us peace. And so to find peace means to be with what is and to address what is, and if we can do that with a quiet mind, then we have access to intuition, insight, wisdom, humour, spontaneity and creativity, compassion, then those are really useful qualities to bring to any challenge or any difficulty that we might be facing. So what's the physicality of grief, Patria? Oh, a lot of people don't realise just how physical it is, you know. People feel hollowed out or amputated or... Uh, it's very, it's a, it's a dreadful feeling really in the body um, and oftentimes people will also experience the symptoms that the person who died, uh, they might experience those symptoms in their own body. So if someone, uh, I had a, a friend who her partner had a cerebral hemorrhage on the 13th of the month and died several days later. And every month afterwards on the 13th, she would get this blinding, blinding headache that would put her in bed for days. And it wasn't until we sat and talked about it that she recognised that it was grief, you know, that on the same day where he'd had the hemorrhage, even though he died several days later, she developed the migraine. So we developed a plan that in the week leading up to that, she'd listen to music, she'd go for a bushwalk on their favourite track and reminisce and, and think about the things that were precious in their relationship that she'd have a warm bath every night before she went to bed so that leading up to the 13th of every month, she kind of acknowledged the grief and cosseted herself and looked after herself in those days and the migraines disappeared So when she understood why they, why they were there. So people manifest grief in their body in many, many different ways, but a lot of people feel amputated and in this sort of state of confusion, like you're living next to yourself rather than in your body. You just mentioned music, Patria, and I just want to play you this little piece of music. That was Bach's double violin concerto in D minor. However, I do think it was much better when he did it in E minor. I thought E minor was a big, big improvement. C minor I liked. D was good, but I think E minor was probably where it sat properly. When you hear that piece of music, where does that take you? What do you feel? Well, it always takes me. Why is me, it special? Yeah, it always takes me to Italy. Um for a number of reasons, really. One which I didn't write about in the book, which is when I was in Sorrento, there was a German orchestra uh, that 
came to town and played that particular piece of music in a, a beautiful cloistered monastery. Uh, so the uh, you know above with a full moon above us. So that was particularly beautiful. It was also though the piece of music that I played for the old priest who. Uh, ended up looking after me for several months that I was in um, his monastery outside of Assisi. And uh, it, it, for me, it captures a lot of poignancy and, and beauty and, uh, yeah, it's a very precious piece of music that I, I think I developed a fondness for in my childhood. Um, although I was also very fond of Rachmaninoff and some of the more romantic um, composers in my childhood as well. If we if we go to Italy just for a moment, are you speaking of Padre Luigi? Yes. Well, Padre uh, Ilarino was the the priest who looked after me in the monastery when I was sick, and Padre Luigi was the one in Sorrento uh, at the cathedral in Sorrento who overlooked my um, hiding in the cathedral so I could get locked up for the four hours that they had a siesta in the afternoon. And I used to I used to love being in the cathedral by myself because it was this sort of sacred place of refuge and uh, I could meditate or pray or sing or do whatever I fancied or clean. I did a lot of cleaning in the cathedral. Um, and uh, Padre Luigi would overlook all of that. And Padre Lorino was this wonderful elderly priest who uh, cooked for me and and um, took care of me when I was really very unwell. And I'd taken to meditating in the little cave where St Francis had spent so much time. And in that cave... When I first went in there, I felt either I'll die in here or I'll find peace in here, but I'm not coming out. And so I think he was a bit concerned that he had this pale divorced Anglican holed up in his little Catholic cave and was terribly worried that I might die in there. And uh, he watched over me very closely and, and made sure that I would eat at night. <laughs> Many people, I suspect, Patria, are searching for peace and Probably in the corporate world, the terminology we hear the most is, I'm searching for my purpose. Like, what is my purpose? And Padre Luigi said that in order to find purpose, be where you can love the best. And you said at the time you didn't quite get it, but on reflection you started to understand how powerful and how profound that was. Mm. What did you resolve in the power of that? Well, I think... You know, for me, love is giving attention to, you know, so when you love your work, you give full attention to your work. When you love your partner, you give them attention. When you love your children, you you attend to their needs. So I think to find your purpose is to find where you can give the whole of yourself willingly and enthusiastically because you just know in your bones that this is what you're on the planet to do. And very few people actually find that in their life. And, of course, I've sat with many, many people when they're dying and, you know, several of them have looked back on their life and said, I don't know what it was all about. I don't know why I 
why I spent so much time at the office, you know. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't tell my son I loved him. I don't know why. And so I, I sure don't want to be one of those people. And sometimes it's not until we hit the suffering in our life that it causes us to re-engage and recalibrate and rethink how we're going to use our energy and our precious time because even if you live to 110, it's all over in a, in a flash. And so most of us just want to feel happy and useful. We want to feel that we've made the contribution that we came here to make. And whether that's in the way you raise a family, cook a meal, make a garden, create a painting, create an empire, whatever it is, we want to feel that we gave it our best. And because that's where love comes into play, because you gave it your attention and it flourished under your attention. And if we can make a difference to one another's lives in a positive, creative way, you know, I think that's a great source of satisfaction. I know for me, when, when, when I nearly died and then I didn't, um, I knew that happiness is not about the stuff. And what gives me joy is seeing people realise that they have choice, that they don't have to be defined by the things that have happened to them, that they can make new choices, go in new directions, and that peace is always possible regardless of the circumstance. And so for me, that gives me tremendous joy and, and satisfaction and that's why, you know, I continue to do the work that I do. And when you say it's not about stuff, there was a beautiful uh, quote, a German saying in your book, uh, and it said, the last shirt has no pockets. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah. Uh, and, and in hearing you say that, Patria, what I wrote down in my journal just here is I wrote down, you know, do you just want to know you gave it your best? Mm. Mm. I would challenge many people who are caught up in the corporate world to sit mm. down today, right now, in this moment, as soon as the show is finished, or turn, pause it for a second and say, are you giving your health the best? Are you mm. giving your children the best of you? Are you giving your partner the best of you? Are you giving the community the best of you? I think there'd be mm. no doubt people would say, I'm giving my work the best of me in most cases. Yes. Uh, but that rounded, when you get, I love that, that when I get to the end of my time and I don't know what it's all about, if you say, mm. well, what are the most, imp imp the most critical important elements mm. in your life? Mm. You go, oh, it's family. Well, then <laughs> the question is, are you really giving your family your best mm. or are you giving them some of what's left over after work and after yes. you and after everything else? And, man, I reckon that's a really profound piece of content right there for people to stop and get their journal out and go, just be honest with mm. yourself, do some self-reflection. Mm. You know, we we kind of sometimes take for granted the people that love us and we know that, you know, if if some real trauma happened that they'd absolutely stand there by our side and and go through some pretty painful experiences by our side and and many people in the workplace wouldn't <laughs> but the the you know the those in your life that will and yet we so often don't give them a sense of deep appreciation of how important they are for us and how we treasure their friendship and their love and their concern for us. And, uh, you know, just to give thanks and, and be grateful for the love that you have in your life and the people who support you in your life 
is a is a tremendous thing to do um, for yourself and of course for the other person as well to feel that you value them that feel that uh, you know you can always be there as their support you know that takes a relationship into a much deeper place than just the superficial appearance of a relationship and if I track to the to the earlier part the first quarter of the book Patria, you speak about your brother who you tragically lost to suicide and Brendan was someone you deeply loved to the point where in the the first part of your book you took it on as you believed that your purpose in life was to to be a guardian to look after Brendan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You were close, you did things together, you thought, you prayed for him and then he tragically took his life and in writing the book now, and looking back over that time that you had, what happened and then what's passed since then, when you, what, what strength do you draw from that? When you think about your brother and you think about all that, that he went through, the things that could have been, the conversations, what do you, what's the primary thing you draw from that time that you take strength from that you can pass on to someone else who may have the same situation to face? Oh, look, it's... It's a very challenging thing to come to terms with someone's suicide. And, you know, Brendan was in Kathmandu when he took his life. So he was cremated over there. So there was no body. There was no memorial, no funeral, no packing up of possessions. Uh, It was very hard to reconcile. You know, one moment he was in Kathmandu and then he just wasn't. And it was very hard to take on bore the reality of his death because of um, not seeing a body, not going through any of those rituals that we go through in order to acknowledge a person's passing. So, but what I take from it, I think, you know, I, I wonder sometimes if Brendan had come to one of the programs that we conduct now, you know, would that have helped him? Um, I wonder at that. He really went into his black hole of depression. Well, I felt like I lived on the edge of that black hole too. And when he went into that black black hole of depression and destroyed his body so violently, um, when I had leukaemia, you know, I felt like leukaemia in some way was nudging me towards my own black hole of despair and powerlessness and helplessness and, and, you know, Brendan didn't survive the experience and I wondered whether I would. It didn't really endear black holes to me at all. Um, but in, I think meditation for me was a wonderful way of witnessing myself having the experience rather than feeling completely consumed or overwhelmed by the experience. And so, you know, he was, he was a wonderful human being and I certainly think of him now with great love and, and warmth and he had a, an absolutely wonderful, quirky sense of humour uh, and we constantly quote him and, you know, he'd say things like, well, what a friend we have in cheeses, you know, and we, <laughs> I don't think I've ever eaten cheese and not thought about what a friend we have in cheeses. <laughs> 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 so, he was always full of quirky little comments and, uh, and he was a great talent in many ways and a prodigious um, mind in many, many ways. Um, 
and I hope he found his peace. <laughs> You've said the invisible world has always been more of interest to you than the visible world. What, mm. what is the invisible world of which you speak? Well, I think it's for some people that might be God. Um, people tend to make God something outside of themselves. I think God is the energy, the life force that keeps everything in motion. Um, we know that if you penetrate down and down and down and down through any solid object, you come to just spinning little packets of energy. Uh, that's just quantum physics. Um, and so the energy, and I, I had that experience too when I was seven of just running around the side of the house with uh, my pet dog, and suddenly the whole physical world became completely insubstantial. And there was just this amazing light, uh, although that's not an adequate word for it, but it was like seeing this web of life that held everything in motion. Well, for me, that's what God is. That's what our essential nature is. That's what enlivens our bodies. That's what enlivens and holds all of creation in its in its web. Um, so, yes, and for, for some they might see that as God or life or energy or being, consciousness, soul, spirit. It doesn't really matter what we call it. But we know that anything that's material will pass. Um, that energetic realm doesn't. It's indestructible. It's eternal. It's always there. But everything that's material will pass, whether it's, you know, a piece of furniture, an empire, <laughs> whatever it might be, it will pass. And if we really want to find the peace that passes all understanding, we need to align ourselves with that energy of the universe and be a living expression of that. And I think that's what it means when people say, not my way, but thy way. It's, you know, if we align ourselves with life and we do that by eating appropriately, sleeping, exercising, taking good care of our physical body, quietening down the brain so that we have it in our service rather than as our master, uh, if we recognise that we have feelings but we're not our feelings, it's a big difference between I am angry and I feel angry. Um, so if we get in right relationship with our body, with our brain, with our life, then what else is there to do but be in service to life and to make the contribution that you came here to make? Just one final thing, Patria. In the book you said you felt as though you had failed at having a good life. And I'm just curious now, having done the book, where you are and the, the beautiful work you're doing, not just in charity, but in the world. How, how do you see a good life today? And, I, and I, I guess I ask that question from having been with a lot of people who are facing the end of their time, who look back and reflect on what could have been or did I have a good life? And you talk about embracing death. Does that mean you embrace life? And I'm just wondering how you see a good life now for you personally based on your experiences, the book, and the people that you have sat with during those times. Mm. You ask such lovely questions, Gary. Um, <laughs> I coached him well. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you, Romo. <laughs> you know, I, I feel very much at peace with the life that I've lived now. 
And if death were to come knocking, then I wouldn't have any uh, reluctance to, to leave at this point. I did when I was 33, but certainly not now. Um, and I think I, that's why I'm grateful for the challenges that I have had in my life because they woke me up really to see how precious life is and how preoccupied we can get with our own shortcomings and our own failings and and hide behind that facade of coping whilst our inner reality might be completely at odds with what we're projecting. And, I, you know, I think when I stopped doing that, it, it, that only came about through a good deal of suffering, really. Um, but when I stopped doing that and, you know, it doesn't take long to take good care of your physical, mental, emotional and spiritual well-being, do that. And then what else is there to do but to make a contribution in some way? And I feel, you know, there's still so much more I'd like to do at, at Quest. Um, you know, we're just seeing more and more people with uh, trauma and surviving domestic violence and veterans and police and first responders who, you know, have witnessed appalling things or had terrible things done to them, witnesses and victims of crime and people and anxiety and grief and loss. And I can see there's so much more that we could do for these people to really give them an opportunity of getting their life back on track. Um, because whilst we have a five-day program where we educate people in neuroplasticity and epigenetics, which are these new frontiers of medicine that really look at how we regain our health and how we become masters and co-creators of our health and well-being rather than helpless victims of our genes or uh, you know, it's a very exciting time. It's just that research takes so long to be incorporated into the system. Um, but even though in a five-day program we see people shift from feeling anxious and depressed to feeling like I can do my life and now I have a whole map and a whole toolbox of strategies and tools and skills that I can bring to managing these things, for some people we need to have them with us for a longer period. So. I would love to be able to, you know, create those sorts of things so that people could actually live at Quest for a month or three months because in that time you cement those neuronal pathways so that people don't go back into violent relationships or, you know, it takes a while to heal the brain from serious trauma. Um, and, yes, there's much that, we'd st that I'd still like to do, but I'm, uh, I'm also very much at peace with feeling I've lived a good life. Just one final thing that occurred to me, uh, Patria, is, I mean, you do beautiful work and you, you're leaving uh, an unquestionably amazing mark on the world with the work you do. And probably the person who knows you better than anybody, apart from yourself knowing yourself, but probably knows you better than anybody is your partner, Wendy, who in the book is such a big part of you Coming to help, helping you deal with all that's gone on, to know yourself, to bring love into your world and bring you to peace. And certainly I would suspect a big part of having a good life. If Wendy was here, if Wendy was here in the studio and I said to Wendy, okay, Patria can't hear this. This is just between you and I, Wendy. What would you say Patria's greatest strength is that Patria brings to the world? What do you think Wendy would say? Uh, I think she'd probably say resilience. 
you know, she does know me very, very well. And, you know, don't for a moment think that uh, Quest would be where it is today if it weren't a team effort because uh, without Wendy's support not and not just moral support, I'm talking about, you know, cleaning the toilets, making the beds, as we did in the early days uh, to get things up and happening. The first two years we just lived off our savings because um, there wasn't enough money to, to pay anyone a salary. So, you know, she has walked every step of the way in the creation of that beautiful centre and is is very much involved on a on a daily basis. So, but I think she'd say um, tenacity and resilience have been my my strongest qualities, and and I think she thinks I'm very brave. I remember one time I was going to speak to a couple um, who'd lost their children, uh, three children in a terrible accident and she said, you know, you're very brave and I said, why? She said, well, who would want to go and talk to parents who've lost all of their children? And, you know, it's it's true in a way. It's not easy to be with people in great anguish and because you're confronted with your own helplessness and powerlessness to change what's happening to people who are in so much pain. Um, but it's all of those experiences that we've talked about that have really enabled me to turn up because, you know, love turns up when it doesn't know what to say and it doesn't know what to do, but love turns up, preferably with a casserole in hand, um, just to offer whatever you can in a circumstance in which there are no easy answers. See, I, 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 I know I was going to finish up. but <laughs> Love a good chat. Look, I could talk to Patria for hours, <laughs> don't get me wrong. But this, and I'm, I'm respectful of your time, but I just want to get this out because I don't know if people do turn up. Because if I hear that scenario, Patria, I think that is just the most amazing purpose, gift, desire, love, to go and do that, and that's such a unique thing. But when when we hear bad news, and I'm included, I, I, and this is why I, I personally want to ask this question, when I hear bad news and someone loses a partner or there's a tragedy of some mm. description, I find it really hard to know what to say because I haven't been there. And the worst thing is when someone says, oh, I can imagine how you're feeling. Mm. No, you can't. To lose three children, I'm sorry, but you can't. Unless Mm. you have been that actual situation, Mm. no, you can't. Mm. You can't imagine what it's like. In which case I find myself doing nothing because I don't know what to say. I don't want to say I'm sorry or because I go, and then I go with my own will and I feel as though it's shallow because – I kind of send that, I say that, then I go with my own world. If I have to say it face-to-face, I chicken out because I don't know what to say mm. and I don't know if I can handle it. So I do nothing. So I do nothing. Yeah. And I, I think that's such a hard place to be. It is a very hard place to be and some people do cross the road or go to great lengths not to be confronted by someone else's suffering because of the very things you've spoken of. But I think we can always say, you know, I cannot imagine what it's like for you right now, but I'm here. And if you want an ear, if you want to talk, I'm willing to listen. And you have to be willing to listen, you know, and that means you have to bear witness to 
appalling anguish and and weeping and and tragedy and the if onlys and the what ifs and all of that that are bound up in such stories. But to leave that person in isolation would be a, a far greater sense of suffering for them, to feel that everyone's deserted them. And indeed, that particular couple said, you know, whilst they'd seen many psychologists and, uh, you know, none of them knew what to say to them. Uh, none of them knew how to help them. None of them knew, you know, how to be of any assistance to them because they were just overwhelmed by the story themselves. Well, that's not much help to these people. And they actually need some help in how am I going to sleep at night because every time I close my eyes, it's it's the horrors there. Um, so people do need practical assistance in how you are now going to live given that this has happened. And we need to offer that to one another. And I think you're right, Gary. I think many people really struggle to find a way to be in the company of suffering because it hurts and we have to bear witness to our own sense of helplessness and powerlessness. Um, but I'd encourage anyone to say, I cannot imagine what it's like for you because I've never been in that situation myself and my, I'm so sorry for your pain and for your loss and I am here and See if there's not something you can do, like take over the lawn mowing for a month or two or, you know, take over meals or take home laundry or take people to appointments or do something that's practical and actually going to be useful for the person. Um, the book is, up until now, it's a memoir, the inspiring story of the founder of Quest for Life, Patria King, where, and I've read it twice, and I've read some passages from it, which we'd never done the show before. I loved it. It's beautiful, beautifully written. And there's, it's a great sort of resilience and grit, but there's also, as I've talked to you about, you know, the guys in the book, there's some beautiful takeaways. Where where do we find it, Patrick? Oh, it should be in any bookstore at the moment because it's right. just been released. So it'll be anywhere. Um, or it's always available through our website too, which is questforlife.com.au. Uh, but it should be in any bookstore. Amazon and Kindle and all that stuff too, Patria? I imagine. Yes, I don't even know that, but I imagine so. Cool. For anybody listening, I've been down to visit Patria uh, a number of times at Quest for Life. It is, and you're right, I'm, I'm so glad that you had the resilience to stick by your guns because it is the most beautiful place. And for anybody who it does need someone to talk to and to hang out and be around the right crowd. Quest for Life down there in the Southern Highlands of New South Wales here in Australia is just, it's a very, very special. For the minute you drive the driveway, it's a special place. Mm. So many people say just coming up that gravel driveway, they feel like they've finally arrived somewhere where they can just be themselves and don't have to get it right for family or for anybody else and that everything's all about them. And we do take very good care of people when they're with us. Well, thank you. I could talk to you literally all day. Uh, It is always such a, I always feel so good after talking to you, Patria. You're a force of nature. The book is beautiful. Everyone knows where to get it. And um, I hope to see you soon. Yeah, thank you so much, Gary and Robbo. It's been really lovely spending some time with you. No worries. I'm looking forward to number four. You can be the world record holder. (laughs) I'll keep you to that. We don't take ourselves too seriously. I wish I knew how to quit you. The Mojo Radio Show.
In your intro for Betria, you called her a force of nature. I'm just going to say she's one of the happiest people I've ever met. I And I think I said this to you after we finished recording that interview with her. I spend a morning talking to her for an hour and the rest of my day just lights up. And and I there's not a lot of people I can say that about, but I can certainly profess that about Patria. She is amazing. Yeah, I wouldn't agree with that. <laughs> wouldn't you? <laughs> oh, well, okay. No, the reason I wouldn't is because I don't think happy is the right word. I'd say that, and this has been a thread for the last number of months on the show, I don't think happy is the right word. I think fulfilled is the word. Mm. Because if we go back to Michael Gervais, the third of the drunken monkeys, he said, I'm not looking for happiness because when bad things happen, I don't want to be happy. I want to be sad. I want to be angry. I want to grieve, but I want to come out of it. So he said, I want to experience the full life of emotions. I want, to, I want the whole lot. Mm. And I want to be able to deal with them in, in the right way. And I just think that Petria is fulfilled. She's very centered, very calm. She's spiritual, but she's fun. I don't know. It's just I don't know that happy happy is the right word that I would use. Maybe you can. I'm happy's probably should, may, maybe happy's one element. Yeah, but I think fulfilled people like that just sit with you and really listen. Yeah, and look at you and really notice what they see. And I find her calming, and I find her fulfilling, mm. and I find her spiritual and empowering. And that's why I think that's I, I think she's a force of nature. I think she encompasses all the beautiful things about mm-hmm. nature. You'd love her as your mum, wouldn't you? Like imagine the nice warm cuddles before you went to bed when you were a kid and all that sort of stuff. I can imagine her being your mum. No, she's a naughty grandma. <laughs> she probably she probably is a bit of that too, isn't she? Let's be honest. Oh, mate, she's done some naughty stuff. Don't get me wrong. Read the book, and she had no saint. She's had, she's had her moments. Yeah, right. But that's great. I mean, she's got. All that to call from. And and I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm just going to pull it here and just say that we should just pull stumps on the show because there's a lot to process in that. Mm. We're all in that place where we are in the darkness. We need to see the light. We are in that place where we want fulfilment in our life. And I just, I think it's a good place to stop down and just call it quits, let people grab their journals, process that, reflect, have a moment of silence just to go inside and think about themselves. So uh, I think it'd be good to play a Get Out song. Well, I've got one. I'm, I'm going to go, stick with Happy. I'm going with R.E.M., Shiny Happy People. See you next week.
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.